Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Brothers and sisters, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, even right now in this moment, as we open your word, break through our resistance, topple over our wrong-headed wisdom, and give us, give every single one of us the faith of a child to receive the word of our Father fully and completely, without reserve, unhindered in our trust in you. This we ask for Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin the sermon with some happy thoughts about the most likely cause of your death. I came across recently, I guess you could call it the headline, the the headline news gap in the causes of death. In other words, the leading causes of death in the United States of America vis-a-vis the deaths that are reported on the news, whether that's on your phone or in print or on television, and the tremendous gap between those two things. So reality is the three leading causes of death in the United States of America Heart disease, number one, cancer, number two, road uh, crashes and collisions, number three. The news reports on heart disease about 2% of the time, even though that causes something like 30% or more of the deaths. You take the three leading causes of death, that's cancer, heart disease, and road incidents, and that's 70%, they say, of the deaths in the United States of America can be attributed to that. Less, less than 1% of the deaths in America can be attributed to terrorism or homicide, and yet over 64% of the coverage is about homicide and terrorism. For whatever that's worth, I suppose it's reason number 282 that this pulpit doesn't follow the news. It's always misleading, always misleading. We have a sure source of truth. Isaiah is writing to us about life and death. And our subject this morning is actually the judgment of God in death, and the fires of hell. This is what Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 63. Death, the Bible indicates, death, the Bible indicates, isn't just because of cancer or heart disease or road incidents. Death, the Bible says very clearly, is the just judgment of God because of sin. Death is the just and righteous judgment of God because of sin. And Isaiah writes not only about death, but about the vengeance and wrath of God in dealing out death. And Isaiah doesn't apologize when he does so. He introduces us to this figure in Isaiah chapter 63. If you pick it up in verse 1, Isaiah's like a watchman high up on the city wall, and he sees a figure coming toward us. 
And this is what he reads. This is what he says. We'll read Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 1. Who is this? Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Church, I don't believe there's any right way to read this and pawn it off as Isaiah being angry or a strange aberration in the Old Testament. The only faithful way to read this is that this is Jesus. This is Jesus whom Isaiah sees trampling upon the blood and crushing his enemies. Isaiah starts with two questions. Who is this? Verse 1, who is this? And verse 2, why is your apparel red? Who is this? And why is his apparel red? And then Isaiah gives a controlling image. You see it? The last word in verse 2. Treads in the winepress. Church, the Bible is filled with ideas. But the Bible is filled with ideas that come to us in images. In images. This image itself is important. We're not meant to just abstract some weird definition of wrath. We're meant to picture and feel this image of the wine press. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the wine press? I have trodden the wine press alone. I trod them in my anger and crushed them or trampled them in my wrath. This language of, we could translate the Hebrew word crushing, I have crushed them in my wrath. If we're attuned to the images of Scripture and the language of the Old Testament, our minds should go to the first use of this word crushed in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 where after our mother and our father sinned and we were going to die hopeless, the prophecy came that there will be an enemy who will strike at the heel of the Redeemer, but the Redeemer will come, so to speak, with vengeance in his heart, and the Redeemer will crush the head of our enemy. This is the word, trampled, crushed. 
Paul quotes Romans, uh, Paul quotes Genesis 3.15 in Romans 16.20 when he says to the church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Unrepentant evil will not win. The God of peace is the God who will judge forever in hell. The God of peace is not helped by a church who takes that word peace and just runs as fast as we can and abdicates the doctrine of the vengeance of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God in hell. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What's the image of the wine press? Wine is a, is a, a drink that is given for feasting, for celebrating at a wedding, to gladden the countenance. The wine press, you think about the common biblical imagery of sowing and reaping and harvesting. At the harvest time, we pull the, vine, the, the, the grapes off of the vine and then we press them in the wine press. So our minds are meant to think sowing, reaping, harvesting, The harvest is the end, and after you've harvested everything, then what you do is you sit down with a glass of wine and you rest. This is meant to bring us to the end, the eschaton, after the final harvest is completed. Isaiah's image of the wine press is picked up by the apostle John uh, multiple times in the book of Revelation, but this imagery of treading and trampling, you you, you can't get around it there in verse 3. I trod them in my anger. The them is not grapes. The them is people. And the answer to the question, why is your garment red, isn't just because he's been in a wine press that is purple or red with the juice of the fruit. It's the blood of the enemies. The identification of people with crushed grapes is powerful and it's hard to take. But before, church, before we sidestep that and say, I, I, don't, I don't know about that, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I trust God because, he, because of hell or whatever, before you think that this image is too much, never read this image of a sovereign God crushing his enemies without having in your mind Isaiah's use of the word crush in Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 53. There is a righteous God who will crush his enemies and their blood will pour out like the juice of a a grape. But this self-same righteous God, this thrice holy God who's perfect beyond all perfections, he crushed his own son. And the blood of his son poured out. How could we ever say that it's unjust for God to punish his enemies when this same God has made the way of salvation at such a cost that it pleased him to crush and crucify his own son? Isaiah 53, he grew up like a young plant. And he was crushed for our iniquities. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and trample upon him. And upon him fell the chastisement that brought us peace. Because Jesus was in the winepress of God's wrath, we have the joy of peace and salvation. 
The language here is not easy to take, but we must remember that salvation has been purchased and is fully and freely offered to everyone everywhere. So I'm preaching this morning on God's wrath in hell. And I am contending from Scripture that it is just and right for God to do so because of who God is and because of what God has done, not the least of which is that God has sent Jesus as the Savior of the world. John picks up this image of the wine press in Revelation 19. Let's turn a couple things to show you in the book of Revelation. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 19. The image of the wine press, the wrath of God. In Revelation 19, we can pick it up in verse 11. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Verse 17 of Revelation 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Here Jesus, in his second coming, comes to the earth with a sword in his mouth, and it's a sword of death and judgment. If you remember in Isaiah 61, which Jesus quoted in Luke 4 as the very first time that he stood up and spoke the word of God in his ministry, he quoted Isaiah 61 and he left off the end part. He said, God, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he finished the reading and he sat down. But that reading ends to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. The reason Jesus left that out the first time is because there was not a sword in his mouth the first time he came. There were words of grace and truth and forgiveness and an offer of salvation to everyone everywhere. And yet when he comes again, it will be with a sword in his mouth and he will come dealing judgment. John uses a dramatic technique here in Revelation chapter 19, and it's the technique of inverted, inverted imagery. Perhaps you can think of a movie where this happens, or a poem, or it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great part of songwriting. Because in Revelation 19, the beginning of Revelation 19, we have this image, a lamb 
and a wife and a marriage supper and a banquet with the guests clothed in white. Then see the image is inverted and the lamb becomes a warrior in a blood-soaked robe and the wedding gives way to a battle and the feast at the wedding is inverted into a feast on corpses and offal, which the carrion birds just pick apart. It's the same image, but it's inverted because salvation always includes judgment, and judgment is always the backside, the flip side, the inverted side of salvation. As we look at this scene, and the small and the great, and the kings and those in authority are just picked apart by the vultures, it is an awful scene of death and destruction. And there's a part of the human heart that, of course, recoils at it. But at the same time, church of Jesus Christ, remember, this destruction is avoidable. Not by those who work hard enough. God didn't set, up, set it up like that. This destruction is avoidable because God the Father crushed God the Son on the cross. It is avoidable because Jesus Christ was crucified, crushed by the Father, and his blood flowed out like that wine, like that purple crimson wine would flow in the wine press. So from Revelation 19, go back to Isaiah 63, and perhaps one of the most stunning pieces of this image in Isaiah 63 is what it says in verse 4. What is in the heart of Jesus? What is in the heart of Jesus? Is the heart of Jesus gentle and merciful? Yes, 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 amen. But what is in the heart of Jesus? Verse 4 of Isaiah 63. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. What's close to the heart of Jesus? Mercy? Salvation, love, well, yes. But here in Isaiah 63, when Jesus comes again, what's in his very heart is vengeance, justice, and wrath. Why will Jesus take vengeance? And why does Jesus almost take pains to say that he's not taking vengeance at arm's length? Like, this is something I have to do, but I don't want to. He says, this is in my heart to do. Why? Why is Jesus' heart like that? Well, when I'm speaking about Jesus' heart, I'm speaking better than I know. I can't possibly unveil everything that's in Jesus' heart, but, but it, it's what it says here. So why, why is the heart of Jesus eager to accomplish this? I'll tell you one reason why. It's because Jesus loves his people. And when Jesus returns to vindicate and protect his people and to put down forever those who have abused and mistreated his people, Jesus is eager so to do. I'm just a flawed guy, but I love those kids who were on this stage. And if somebody mistreated those kids, I would not have a problem putting that person in their place. I wouldn't hesitate to do it. I wouldn't be like, oh, this is kind of a bad thing and I'm more of a pacifist. I would take them out if I could. And I, I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. 
Well, this is coming from a sinful, flawed man. The holy God of the universe, he loves his people. You love your people. You, you would have your people's back. Well, this is our God. The Bible says over and over, doesn't it? In the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's people are the special object of the hatred of the world. If you don't like that, you, you got to find another religion. If you sign up for Jesus, you will be the special object of the hatred of the world. The Bible indicates that over and over through the history of Israel, through the history of the church. One of the first things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is, if you're going to follow me, everyone's going to think they're happy when they beat you, like you're headed for persecution. Just as God's people are the special objects of the world's hatred, so, so, the worldly people who mistreat God's people are the special objects of God's holy hatred. Just as God's people are the special objects of the world's hatred, so the worldly people who persecute, abuse, and mistreat God's people are the special objects of God's vengeance and God's wrath. And the Bible does indicate that if you follow Jesus, you will be the special object of the world's hatred. But the Bible indicates in the whole story, the whole story, that those who are persecuted will ultimately be protected. And those who do the persecuting will ultimately be rejected. Their bodies will be left to the vultures of the air. Why? Because God loves his people. I don't know everything that it means when it says that the day of vengeance is in his heart. Because anytime we ask a question about Jesus, the answer is bigger than we can, bigger than we can say. Jesus is lamb and Jesus is lion. Jesus is gentle lamb, and yet the, the, the number of words about vengeance and wrath that here apply to Jesus, he says, I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments, stained my apparel, the day of vengeance. I looked and no one helped. I was appalled. My wrath upheld me. I trampled down the people. I made them drunk in my wrath. This is, this is describing what Jesus Christ does. The heart of Jesus is not simple. It's been said that he's not even safe, but he is good. And Jesus is out to rid the entire world of every last particle of human evil. And he will do so. Only those who refuse his salvation end up on the backside of his judgment. Why is this day so deep in Jesus' heart? We have a little illustration of how, what we would do to protect kids. You remember Acts chapter 9? Saul, Saul, remember? Saul was arresting Christians. Saul was beating Christians up. And when Jesus opened up from heaven and said, Saul, Saul, he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is why it's in his heart. Because he, his people are his own. He loves them. Every church member who has been abused, God will right the wrongs. Every church member who is martyred in Eritrea, in Turkey, places in the Middle East, 
God will right the wrongs. So this scripture teaches us that salvation, you see the key words in verse 5, salvation and wrath. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. The two key words, judgment and salvation, they always come together. The, The Salvation is divine deliverance from judgment. Salvation and judgment always come together. When God comes, he comes to judge and he comes to rescue from judgment. Think of Noah and the ark. Judgment on the world, salvation for those in the ark. Think of the cross. Think of the cross where judgment and wrath was fully poured out and yet there's salvation and mercy there. Judgment and salvation are always two sides of the same coin because they are two consequences of the mighty power of God. Salvation to the humbly repentant and wrath to the defiantly unrepentant. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7 is another key verse. I'll just read it to you. You don't have to turn there. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 and 7 says this. It's almost as if Paul thinks there's somebody in the church who's going to say, maybe it's not fair for God to judge people like that. And so this is how Paul couches it and puts it together. He says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you and to grant relief to you who have been afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, is God will repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. There is utter and complete and unimpeachable justice. God is going to right all the wrongs. God will render all things right in the end. For the Christian, the doctrine of God's wrath and the doctrine of hell can properly be understood as a doctrine of comfort and relief. Because all the unrequited, uh, all of the not fixed on the earthly horizon of my lifetime things that are so wrong that they keep me up at night, they will be made right by God. And we stopped our reading in verse 6. We'll pick up verse 7 next week, Lord willing. But I, I challenge you to, to take verse 7 as like a tone shift. You see what he says? I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted to us. And I'm challenging you to say, if you take that as a tone shift, you've missed it. It's not that he's like doom and gloom and then joy and happiness. It's the same tone. He is recounting the steadfast love of the Lord in vindicating his people and persecuting the persecutors of his people. And he's celebrating it. Tie those two together. It's not really a tone shift after all. God's people seeing God vindicate himself and all that is righteous in the end is not so much a cringe-inducing event that makes us recoil as it is an event that makes us bow down and worship a God who is so just and so good. This is why so many of the Psalms, it's a a 
there's tonal dissonance for us, I suppose, in the, in the postmodern West. So many of the Psalms, he's like, shake the tambourine and dance because God's going to judge everybody. And it just, it's, it sounds strange to us. This is not because there's a problem in the Bible. It's because you have been emotionally malformed by Disney. You need to repent. <laughs> just uh, there's so many I could turn to. Just show you one, Psalm 68. Psalm 68. It says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him will flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God, and they shall be jubilant with joy, he says. With joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Time eludes us to read the whole thing, but if you're still in Psalm 68, just look at this almost parade imagery of verse uh, 19. 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord belongs deliverance from death. And God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea. You may strike your feet in their blood, and the tongues of your dogs may have portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in the front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God in the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are Israel's fountain. Is the, is the young elementary age girls with playing the tambourines in this song of praise to God for righting the wrongs and judging the guilty. We do not desire. Sometimes it helps to state the obvious. We, I do not desire to see my unsaved loved ones suffer condemnation. I desire to see them saved. So I pray for them. So I speak to them. So I try to be generous to them financially. So, so we invest as a church in missions and the hope of the gospel. We plead with everyone everywhere to repent. And in the end, when Jesus returns and he judges all of those who have rejected him because he is Jesus, I will have no problem with Jesus being Jesus forever and ever. I'll just say worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was crushed and slain and who now slays his enemies. Anytime I preach on the subject of hell, it's obligatory, I think, and necessary to answer a couple of objections, uh, you know, or, or just to, to lay things out clearly. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that God is perfect and just in all of his ways. The Bible says that God is love. The Bible says that God is love and that God is perfect and just in all of his ways. And the Bible says in many places that God condemns and judges sin with eternal torment and punishment in hell. God is love 
God is perfect and just in all of his ways, and God condemns and judges sins eternally in hell. And we put these things together, and the apparent conflict makes us scratch our head like, like what's going on here? And we assume that, well, there's some, there's some kind of problem in God for making hell so bad and so eternal. But we're like, I just think we're like the guy in the bank who is just railing at that poor teller. I, you know, I'm not overdrawn. I have money in my account. I'm not overdrawn. I have money in my account. The problem's not on the bank's end. They didn't make a mistake. The problem is you spent your money, you forgot about it, and now you're yelling about it. There, there's, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not meaning to, to not identify with you and try to help you if you're one who has a problem with hell. But I am trying to tell you very straightforwardly, there are no problems in God. There are no problems in God. The problem's on the other side. The problem is not that God punishes sin too severely. The problem is that we have too light a view of sin and too low a view of God. The problem is not that God punishes sin too heavily. The problem is that we have too light a view of sin and too low a view of God's worth and glory. Why do we make that mistake? Why do I make that mistake? Why do I make that error? Because of my own sin. You really, you re you really want to get down into your belly button, think about this. It is your own sin that keeps you from seeing how awful sin is. It is your own sin that keeps you from seeing how awful sin is. And when have I not been stuck in my own sin? I'm saved. My sin's forgiven. But I'm still saying, oh, wretched man that I am, I still need to be delivered because I'm still sinning. And, and you're, you're like that fish. You're like that fish who has never been above the surface of the water. And you don't know you're wet. The, the, the fish has never not been wet. When have you not been a sinner? Like, you know, it's like, so of course it's not going to add up. But the limitation is on our side. It's certainly not on God's. Sometimes you hear someone say, sometimes you might have said, I like to think of God as so loving that he'll forgive everyone in the end. Or maybe you've heard somebody say, or maybe you've said, I cannot believe in a God who would send people to eternal conscious torment in hell. I would just ask you to slow down and say that sentence, or if you have the guts enough, write that sentence out and remind yourself of how that sentence started. I like to think of God as, or I can't believe in a God who. And as you slow down and think that through, I just want you without blinking and clear-headedly to say, I have put myself in a situation where what I like and my preferences now define 
the God who created me and all things. This is not a position that you want to be in, friend. Not now and not ever. The position that we should be in when we do not understand what God has done is where we take our hand and we place it over our mouth. And when we speak, we say, holy is the Lord. God's vengeance and wrath is proper because God is love, because God loves his people, because salvation and judgment are always, you know, always those two sides of the, of the same coin. So, I, I, it, it's my hope, maybe, maybe I did it, maybe I didn't, but it's my hope that you will never hear me speak of hell in a flippant manner. And it is also my hope that you will never hear me apologize for the doctrine of hell. Because God is good. God is good. And God is holy. And my only job is to speak what he has said and put my hand over my mouth when I'm getting in too deep. If I could give you one more... If I could give you one more answer to an objection, and to me it's one of the most powerful arguments. It's simply, call it the argument of tears in heaven. Call it the argument of tears in heaven. Uh, apologies to Eric Clapton. Uh, the Bible says that when we get to heaven, he's going to wipe away every tear. But you know, in Revelation 5, John weeps in heaven. Remember that? Remember that? It says in Revelation 5, I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look in it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. It's, it's exactly like Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who is walking toward me? Who is this who's walking toward me and ready to trample the winepress? The, why was John weeping? Yeah, well, I don't know. He's in heaven and I've never been to heaven. But here's my guess. That scroll is... The, that scroll is God's ultimate plans to fix every wrong and to right every injustice and to vindicate everyone who's been persecuted and to release everyone who's been oppressed. These are God's ultimate plans to right everything. And I, I kind of, I, I, I dare to say I kind of know how John felt when he wept because I'm not the only one here who has wept salty tears over injustices that haven't been fixed yet. You have too. Well, this, is, this was John's weeping. It's what, how, just that angst and that unrequited longing that things aren't made right yet. So, Jesus treading the winepress was not something that John apologized for, and it wasn't even something that he cried about. It was something that took away all of his tears. Church, if you can, if we can 
begin to place ourselves in that image and picture. We can begin, we can begin to understand the holy and just wrath of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even now, minister your word unto your people. Even now, Father, I beg you as a flawed vessel, if any of my words have misled or caused confusion, let that be forgotten. And I beg you, Holy Spirit of Jesus, to let your word your worth, your light, your holiness, your truth. Let that remain and strengthen your people so that we may worship you for the God that you are and how you have delivered us in salvation. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.